Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 187, recorded Thursday, May 26, 2022. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, moving to a non-hub airport, and what makes a great tap room. So coming to you for the last time from the Travel Commons studios in Chicago, Illinois, because we're packing everything up and moving the 500 miles down I-65 to Nashville at the end of June, at the end of next month. After 25 years here in the Chicago area, Chicagoland, as they say, uh, we decided, you know, we needed a change of scenery. So with all the packing and everything that goes on with a move, I don't see a June episode in the offing. I have to tell you that way back when I was doing heavy international travel, sort of Chicago on Monday, Toronto on Tuesday, New York to London on Wednesday, Zurich on Thursday, getting back to Chicago at Friday midnight. I mean, what then seemed like necessary travel, but now looking back on it just seems like stupid travel. But back then, people would ask me my favorite city, and I thought about it a lot, but I would always end up with the same answer, Chicago. And that's not just because it was my home. I was offering up that same answer when we lived in Philadelphia. And no, my explanation to the raised eyebrows that that answer often generated was that Chicago was the right size, big enough to support a wide range of interesting stuff, sports, culture, restaurants, and now microbreweries, but not so big that you couldn't get your arms around it. You couldn't kind of figure it out. And it had enough Midwest pragmatism from people moving in from Indiana and Iowa and Minnesota and Wisconsin just sort of to keep everything grounded, to keep it from getting too wacky. And to their, but what about the weather question, I'd say, yes, it can be minus 10 degrees in Chicago in January, but it can be plus 110 degrees in Phoenix in August. Most every place has three months of lousy weather sometime during the year, save maybe for San Diego. Different people choose the three months that they can endure just differently. But I have to tell you, over the past few years, I have realized that that answer, my answer about Chicago, just it it doesn't hold up anymore. Not about the weather. The winters still suck. It's about that pragmatism, that Midwest pragmatism. It just seems to be gone, and it's replaced with violent crime, robberies, shootings, carjackings, and definitely non-pragmatic local government decisions. It has started to feel like a replay of the 1970s, which were not a great time in Chicago. Now, I don't think it's permanent. It's a pendulum. And and just like the city came back from a bad stretch in the 70s to be a great place in the late 80s and into the 90s, it's sort of happening again. That pendulum's swinging in the wrong direction. And I have to just tell you, I don't want to hang around for the low point again. And according to the half dozen movers we talked to about packing us up, we're not the only ones thinking that way. So following up, a quick public service announcement. The COVID Real ID extension expires in less than a year. 
According to the TSA, they say beginning May 3rd, 2023, every air traveler 18 years of age and older will need a Real ID compliant driver's license or identification card at airport security checkpoints for domestic air travel. Now, back in episode 183 in January, I talked about getting a real ID version of my Illinois driver's license when I had to renew it. No additional cost, and it took me, I don't know, maybe three additional minutes of time for them to scan some various documents. But if you can't pick up a real ID driver's license before next May, you'll have to remember to take along, say, your passport or your global entry card instead. In the last episode, we walked through the abrupt end of the U.S. CDC's transportation mask mandate on planes, buses, trains. That news cycle lasted, I don't know, right at about a week, the last entry being the CDC asking the Department of Justice to appeal the federal judge's ruling that struck down their mandate that they had extended for two weeks to May 3rd. Now, on May 3rd, the CDC posted a press release reiterating their recommendation that everyone aged two and older wear masks on planes and trains and in airports and in stations. But nothing about the status of that Department of Justice appeal. I'm guessing that they've just decided to accept the facts on the ground and quietly forget about any appeal, which is, quite honestly, probably the only real option they have. And then this week, adding to those facts on the ground, the European CDC has dropped their transportation mask mandate recommendations. The difference, though, is the European CDC's recommendations are just that, recommendations. The enforceable rules are made by each country, and Spain and Italy, many of the countries hardest hit by the initial wave of COVID, have extended their mask mandates to mid-June. Okay, I wasn't going to say anything more about hotel housekeeping because even I'm bored with it. But then I ran across an article in the Wall Street Journal about how hotel housekeeping unions are pushing for a return to daily room service. Certainly a big part of that push is to drive more work, more hours for union members, but also because rooms are dirtier and take longer to clean when they've gone a few days without service, especially with the current guest mix that's still heavier with leisure travelers who, you know, as you might guess, tend to have more people in a room than sort of the single road warrior business traveler. As you might guess, hotel owners disagree with this, but for changing reasons. And if you sort of track the arc of the rationale, it's gone from the pre-pandemic, be green, save water, we'll give you an extra 500 points to skip daily housekeeping, to the pandemic, we're keeping everyone safe by staying out of your room, to now the current, it's your choice and uh, labor shortage. Okay, that's it. I'm really not going to talk about hotel room cleaning anymore. But I will talk about TSA checkpoint passenger volumes again. Back in September 2021, the last time I scraped those numbers off the TSA website, average daily passenger volumes were bouncing around 1.7 million, down 20% from the July summer peak of over 2 million, and down 24% from their pre-pandemic September 2019 numbers. Six months later, looking at the last month and a half, so April to mid-May, the average daily volume is now 2.1 million and growing. And that's only sort of 
10 to 12 percent off of the pre-pandemic April-May 2019 numbers. So if those TSA checkpoints and airplanes are feeling a bit more crowded, it's because they are. I mean, tough to remember back to my first post-lockdown flight in June 2020, when the daily passenger volumes were five to 600,000, and the Southwest boarding agent said, there's 40 of you on a plane with 175 seats, so everybody gets their own row. I in no way want to go back to those times, but I have to say having a bit more plane space was nice. Having done this podcast for a long time, since 2005, I'm on email lists, a lot of email lists for public relations firms. I typically read the subject lines of all of them because every once in a rare while, there's something that catches my eye, like the pitch that led to last episode's interview about Daytona Beach Airport trying to survive in the shadow of the behemoth that is Orlando International. So when I read the subject line, study finds that frequent flyer programs increase cost of business travel. You know, I just had to click through. Now, the study, which is just published in the journal Marketing Science, which I have to admit, I don't read as often as I should, probably because I get tied up pouring through the CDC's morbidity and mortality weekly report. But anyhow, this article was titled, Reaching for Gold, Frequent Flyer Status Incentives and Moral Hazard. It was written by uh, professors from University of Michigan and Duke Business Schools. According to the press release, after analyzing the transactional data of a leading U.S.-based airline's frequent flyer program that included the histories and point accumulations of 3.5 million frequent flyer program members during the 2010 and 2011, so what is that, 10 years ago, 2010 and 2011 point earnings cycles, their main insights were point members are more likely to choose higher fares when not paying for it, And the closer frequent flyer program members get to elite status, the more likely they are to choose an airline even when it may be more expensive than the competitor's flight. Hmm. Uh, That's that's insightful. Uh, It feels a bit sort of dawn-breaking over Marblehead. I mean, how can you be researching frequent flyer programs and act like you've never heard of, let alone done, a mileage run. I don't know, maybe the press release overly summarized the research and just wasn't communicating its subtlety. So I hit Google to find the actual paper, 29 pages of text and equations and 15 pages of bibliography and data tables later. Nope. The press release was pretty much it. If the moral hazard of business travelers using their employer's money to pay for more expensive flights to make status, if that's all eliminated, so if there's no moral hazard and it's a beautiful world, the paper estimates that companies would save at least 7%. 7% of their travel costs. So looking at 2019 data, pre-pandemic, the average cost of a walk-up U.S. domestic ticket, one booked less than a week advance, so kind of the typical road warrior ticket, was about $500. So to do the math, 7% of that is $35. 
Now, I don't know, maybe some full contact procurement guy will get excited about the $35 savings, but I don't know that any executive in his or her right mind is thinking to themselves, oh, yes, pissing the people off who are jamming themselves into coach seats and spending nights away from their families for $35 a trip is a great idea. Except at GM. I mean, I remember when frequent flyer programs first came out, GM didn't let their travelers keep the points for business trips, which led to all sorts of weird booking behavior. Until that policy died a quiet death a few years later. Kind of like this research. I'm sure these professors are nice, smart people, but I got to tell you, they got to get out of their offices a bit more. And hey, if you have any travel stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the travelers, send them along to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S, at travelcommons.com. You can send a Twitter message to M. Peacock, post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or the Instagram account at Travel Commons, or you can always go old school and post your comments on the website at travelcommons.com. So the first topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is moving to a non-hub airport. You know, one thing that kind of snuck up on me about our move to Nashville, it'll be the first time in almost 40 years that I haven't lived in an airport hub city. Chicago with American and United at O'Hare, San Francisco with their United hub, Dallas when I signed up for American's Advantage program my first day of work, Philadelphia with U.S. Air, though I avoided them as much as I could. Detroit with Northwest and then back to Chicago when it was now a three-hub town after Southwest took over Midway after that big expansion. Actually, Nashville was a hub in the late 80s, early 90s. Well, kind of a mini-hub, actually. When American was playing around with their network, they built mini-hubs in Nashville, Raleigh-Durham, and San Jose. The experiment lasted maybe about 10 years, never really made any money. I think the only thing of American left in those airports are Admirals Clubs. In Nashville, Americans down to 9% of the passenger volume. Today, Nashville's direct flight distribution looks like any non-hub airport. The top four destinations are big three hubs, Atlanta, Denver, DFW, and O'Hare, with the fifth being Orlando, thanks to all that Mouseketeer traffic. Now, the number one travel tip on my and any other experienced travelers list is fly nonstop which is much easier from a hub airport, of course. And and then actually what ends up happening is your frequent flyer strategy just falls out from there. So if you live in Atlanta, you're doubling down on Delta's Sky Miles. I mean, realistically, there's no other option. Non-hub? Well, I mean, it could be as straightforward if your flight patterns take you primarily to one of these hub cities, I don't know, Chicago, Atlanta, San Francisco, then your choice, too, is made for you. But if you're in sales or consulting, or maybe like me, slouching toward retirement, and your flight patterns are a bit more scattershot, then you have to think, what's my objective? Flying nonstop for the shortest flight times and lowest probability of disruption? Or is it making elite status because the perks make my travel easier? Or is it building up points to help fund my vacations? Thinking about my consulting colleagues who flew out of non-hub airports every week, they were all about the status. One guy I worked with lived in Fort Myers, Florida, 
and he was all in on Delta, even when flying every week to projects in, say, Dallas or Chicago, he'd always skip the direct American flights and connect through Atlanta, killing the time from all those missed connections with drinks and Delta Sky Club, which actually was free with his top tier diamond medallion status. Now, my calculus is a little easier. One of the side benefits of flying a lot over the past 35 years is that I stacked up enough mileage for lifetime mid-tier elite status on American and United. Now, not enough status to get into their clubs for free, but along with the usual early boarding and free bags, it has gotten me free club entry to their partners' lounges, their One World and Star Alliance partners, which is very valuable when trying to navigate the rabbit warrens that are Frankfurt and London Heathrow after North Atlantic turbulence has screwed up your in-flight sleep plans. Now, if I didn't already have these metal levels or I was within striking distance of a new level, so say close to the $2 million that I'd need to make the jump from United Premier Gold to Lifetime Premier Platinum, then I'd probably suck it up like my colleagues do and get, say, I don't know, the top-tier United credit card with free club access. So I had a place to sit out O'Hare or Denver or Houston weather delays. But even as it is, the lifetime statuses let me step off the elite hamster wheel. So I'm now looking at nonstop flights and earning miles. Out of Nashville, Southwest has the most nonstop flights, so I'll probably be flying them a fair bit. But while Southwest's companion pass perk, their buy a ticket, get one free top tier status, is absolutely phenomenal. I can't BOGO Southwest to Europe, so I'll need to be banking miles on one of the big three so I can book on their One World or Star Alliance or Sky Team partners, which is actually where travel credit cards come back in the picture. Now, back in episode 167 in September 2020, so right after the big pandemic downturn, we talked about people replacing their mileage cards with cashback cards since no one was flying. But that trend is reverting to the mean, and credit card companies have big slugs of mileage to dole out after buying them cheap in 2020 when the airlines needed real cash real fast. So my non-hub strategy, fly direct when I can, leverage those hard-earned lifetime statuses when I can, and charge everything I can on a mileage-earning card, including any drinks I may need to see me through those misconnections. The second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is what makes a great tap room? With a month left in Chicago, Irene and I have built a list of places to hit before we move. That's some mix of greatest hits and places we've always wanted to go but have for some reason not quite gotten around to. And then I have a separate list of Chicago tap rooms that I want to hit one more time. Goose Island, Revolution Brewing, Off Color, Salamoth, Mars, Dovetail, and Metropolitan Brewing. Which got me thinking, why these and not others? There's a lot more tap rooms in Chicago. What makes a good tap room for me? 
Well, the first thing to do is open up Untapped, that beer social networking app that's been my beer diary for over 11 years now. I've checked in at over 1,900 unique locations, and the number one location category for me is a brewery taproom. I scrolled through the list on the app and jotted down the ones I thought, yeah, I'd like to go back there. Now, probably the smallest group on that list is unique brewery experiences, where I actually did the brewery tour, and it was something more than just row after row of steel tanks. Cantillon in Brussels is everybody's favorite. They send you off on your own, guided with nothing but a paper brochure, and tell you not to break anything. And then after you've navigated cool ships and barrel rooms, you make your way back to the start, and then they pour you their amazing Lambique beers. And also in that group is the original Lagunitas Brewery in Petaluma, California, where the tour guide tossed us just filled bottles of IPA that he ended up grabbing off the bottling line just before they got to the packaging machine. But except for those few exceptions, my favorite places have been those that have a wide beer selection, so something more than five taps of IPAs, and or were a cool place, and or gave me the chance to chat with the brewer. So La Bietta's original place in Riga, Latvia, hit those first two square on the head. A very diverse beer menu, a juniper beer inspired by Latvian folk songs, a wheat beer brewed with meadowsweet, a lager with Latvian hops. So all over the place. And it's located in the back courtyard of what looked like back in the fall of 2019 when Andrew and I were there, a block of now slightly derelict early 20th century manor houses. So Great beer menu, very cool space. Now, a little closer to home on my Chicago list, Metropolitan Brewing does nothing but German-style lagers, which end up being the perfect fit for their taproom patio that looks out over the north branch of the Chicago River, so you can kind of catcall people who are kayaking. Going to a brewery's taproom is kind of like seeing a band in concert. So if I go see a concert, I'm going to get a fuller picture of what that band can do than I will just hearing their hit songs on the radio or on a Spotify playlist. Hitting a good taproom can be similar. Getting past those high-volume core beers to see what the brewer can really do. Now, when we were in Santa Fe last month, I went out of my way to hit Rowley's Farmhouse Ales because I really liked their range during our last visit in 2018. So, of course, I had to order the Teosente, which ended up being kind of this funky, earthy, grassy sour that was made from Oaxacan green dent corn that's grown a couple hundred miles east of the brewery near the Texas-New Mexico border. You're just not going to see that kind of beer around. And it was an incredibly interesting beer. I wouldn't buy a six-pack of it, but I was more than happy to drink that glass. But I have to say, probably the best time I've had in tap rooms is when I get to talk to the brewer. During one of my trips last year down to Nashville, I found myself an hour south in Columbia, Tennessee, which bills itself Mule Town. Now, I missed the 2021 Mule Day Festival. It was canceled due to COVID. So instead, I wound my way through what looked like kind of a light industrial neighborhood that was hard up against some freight train tracks. And I guess that neighborhood is billed as Columbia's art district. 
And in the first floor of a building, I found bad idea brewing. I walked in. There were two other folks sitting at the bar, and then the brewer was behind it serving. And he and I just got talking about the beer, about his brewery, about Columbia, about brewing in Columbia, about what kind of beer sells in Columbia. And through all this, taster glasses just kept landing in front of me. Try this. What do you think of that? He'd ask. What was going to be a quick side trip for a beer turned into really a nice afternoon of conversation and, of course, beer. I guess there's one more thing that can make a great taproom or maybe more of a great taproom experience. It takes me to a part of a city that I wouldn't have otherwise gone. I talked a bit about this in episode 176 when my guest was Rob Cheshire of the UK podcast This Week in Craft Beer, and we talked about planning taproom visits, navigating the maze of a Beijing hutong to find Great Leap Brewing, or exiting a Paris metro stop in what turned out to be a North African neighborhood on my way to Deck and Donahue, or riding an e-scooter through a questionable neighborhood in Brookland, Northeast D.C., to find right proper brewing. These were fine places with solid beers, but they were more memorable for the trip to find them than actually for the tap rooms themselves. But you can't always tell this from a Google search. So if you go to the show notes on TravelCommons.com, I'll put up my list of, yeah, I'd like to go back there, tap rooms, maybe to give you some ideas and help you get started. Okay, that's it. That's the end of Travel Commons podcast number 187. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you decide to stay subscribed. As I said at the top of the show, there's probably not going to be a June show because between packing up the Chicago studio and then unpacking it in Nashville, there's just not going to be time. Good news, though, the sound quality in Nashville might get a step function improvement. Just about every apartment building Irene and I looked at had a music studio as one of the amenities. Music City. There you go. The soundproofing, the sound deadening, maybe a better microphone should make things sound a bit better. Quite a ways, quite a journey from those first episodes, recording with the iRiver MP3 player's built-in mic while standing in a shower stall. Oh my, those were the days. And remember, you can find us and listen to the current episodes on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, You can also ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. I will tell you, you have to go to the Travel Commons website for the full archive of episodes. If you, for some reason, want to torture your ears listening to those first bathroom studio episodes, what one listener labeled a potty cast. And hey, while you're at TravelCommons.com, you can check out the show notes page for a transcript and any links that I've mentioned, like the taproom list. Or you can click on the link in the episode's description in your podcast app, and that'll take you straight to the show notes page. And if you've got a couple of minutes, how about leaving us a review on one of those sites? Or better yet, tell someone you know about Travel Commons. Word of mouth, it's really the only way nowadays to grow a podcast. And if you're not subscribed, hit the website at travelcommons.com. There's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of each page, a set of subscribe links at the bottom, a big red subscribe button in the middle of the homepage. And across the bottom of each page on the website, you'll find links to the Travel Commons socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
And as always, if you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe the voice of the traveler, send them along, text or audio file, comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at travelcommons.com, and Peacock on Twitter. Uh, write them on the Travel Commons page on Facebook or Instagram, or post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who's taken the time to send in emails, tweets, and post comments on the website. I really do appreciate it. And hey, until we talk again... Uh, in the uh, and I'm coming to you from the new studios a bit further south. Take care, travel safe, and thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now. Mm-hmm.